Uh, all right, so we're going to be learning last week's parasha of Tazriya Mitzorah. Um, it is a tough parasha to get into. There's no question about it. It's a parasha that is uh, off pu- putting for many reasons. I have it here on the screen share. Uh, the reason being because, of course, it is uh, mainly dealing with the purity and impurity laws that are uh, hard for us to understand. First of all, they're unfamiliar to us because we don't practice them today for the most part. And secondly, they are uh, unusual, meaning that we have difficulty understanding the meaning behind these laws and these rules. Uh, their, their significance is not self-evident. It's not obvious to us, maybe, the way that, um, that the uh, meaning of some other, uh, some other mitzvot is uh, you know, more intuitive. They're not as intuitive to us. Whatever the meaning is, not intuitive to us. So, um, so... W- Aside from the fact that there are laws, I mean, that's a whole other thing. The fact that, you know, generally speaking, the parashiot that have to do with laws are parashiot that are more difficult to, uh, more difficult for people to get into. We all like the drama and the excitement of Barashit. And when it comes to book, the book of Vaikra, the, uh, the uh, interest wanes a little bit. Even the book of Shemot becomes a little bit technical with the building of the Mishkan. And we like stories. So when we get to the book of Bemidbar, we get more stories and it gets a little bit more exciting again. But Vayikra is definitely difficult. Vayikra is the shortest of the books of the Torah. If you look at any Chumash, you'll see it has the shortest number, the least uh, chapters of any book of the Chumash. <clears throat> and it has the least, usually, commentary. Most commentaries are shorter on, on Vayikra than others, except for halachic commentary. If you look for the commentary of what's called Nidrash Halacha, that's where you have an enormous amount on the book of Vayikra because the majority of mitzvot are found in one way or another in the book of Vayikra. So... Uh, be that as it may. So we get to the laws of Tumah V'tara, which even among laws are the, maybe the most difficult for us to understand and appreciate. Um, one of the things that we notice, first of all, Tazria means to become impregnated. And it's talking about a, a woman who becomes pregnant and has a child. And, um, and, Isha ki Tazria v'yalida zachar. She has a male v'tama'ashivat yamim kimeni datevotatidma uvayom ha'shemini yimod besar ornato. On the eighth day, she has a, the, the child has to have a circumcision. So there are seven days of tum'ah, of impurity. Now, I want to point out that the term impurity uh, is a, or unclean is the translation they use here, is a bad translation for many reasons. Um, tum'ah does not refer to anything um, dirty. It doesn't refer to anything unclean, really. The word unclean is a bad uh, is a bad translation because it implies some kind of a feeling of disgust or uh, some kind of a feeling, a negative feeling towards the object that is tamay. That's not accurate at all, really. There's no idea that a tamay thing is disgusting or is unclean. Uh, even impure maybe is inaccurate. I would say the, the term tamay in its technical significance means something that is not allowed to enter the Bet HaMikdash or be involved in the service of the Bet HaMikdash. That's all that Tum'ah means. So every person that you know, every person in the world right now is Tamei. The greatest person is Tamei and the least person is Tamei. Everyone is Tamei because, in fact, you know who is not Tamei? Animals are not Tamei because a living animal is not Tamei. So if you're going to use the categories of Tum'ah V'tara to describe what is clean or unclean, what is good or bad, so it's going to come out that a pig is better than us because a pig, a living pig, is not tamay. A, uh, a dead animal can be tamay, but a living animal can never be tamay. 
So therefore, a pig that's alive walking around is actually pure, and we are impure from the perspective of the laws of Tumah V'tarah. If a person were to touch a living pig, it would not make them Tameh. Um, but they, uh, but but we are all Tameh for other reasons, because we're not careful about the laws of Tumah V'tarah nowadays, nowadays, except with regard to family purity, the woman going to the mikveh each month. But aside from that, we're not involved in the area of Tumah V'tarah today. So everybody is effectively Tameh. And if you've ever gone to a cemetery or ever gone to a funeral or you've had contact with somebody who was there, so then you're Tameh from that. I mean, there's so many sources of Tum'ah in our environment that we are all definitely Tameh. And that doesn't make us bad. In fact, the rabbis made, and this is one of the funny things, the rabbis decreed Tum'ah on a Sefer Torah. A Sefer Torah is Tameh. If a person touches a Sefer Torah, their hands become Tameh. It's rabbinic. But the, but, and the reason is, as we learned when we learned in the Daf Yomi, we always review this point, that the reason why they said that the books of the Torah should be Tameh is because people used to say, hey, let's store the Sifrei Torah together with the holy bread, the Truma. But what happened was that attracted mice or rats and they would chew and eat up the uh, Truma, but they would also take a few bites out of the Sefer Torah. So they said, you know what? We're going to tell people that the Sefer Torah is Tameh. That way they will not... Uh, put the food next to it, the holy food next to it. And that prevented the mixture of food and books, and therefore you didn't have rats or mice gnawing at the Sefer Torah. But what's the point? The point is that they didn't have any issue with referring to a Sefer Torah as Tameh, basically. It says, They make the hands Tameh, to touch a Sefer Torah, to touch a Megillat Esther, makes the hands Tameh. So they didn't consider the word tameh to mean gross or disgusting because they never would have said, let's declare that the Sefer Torah is disgusting. God forbid. They would never say that. So they would say that it's tameh. It has a legal significance. It doesn't have a, um, it doesn't have a, uh, uh, a, an, an emotional significance or a visceral significance. It's a concept. The concept is that it is something that cannot be, um, uh, that is, is not admitted to the service of the Beit HaMikdash. One way or another, it disqualifies for the service of the Beit HaMikdash or is disqualified for the service of the Beit HaMikdash. That's all Tameh means. So even in this context, it's not speaking about relations between the husband and wife that are prohibited during the time of Nida. It talks about that later on in the Torah in actually uh, upcoming parashiot. And this week's parashat only really speaks about the issue of Tum'ah. And what happens in terms of the admissibility or inadmissibility of this woman entering the Beit HaMikdash or somebody who has contact with her entering the Beit HaMikdash. That's all that the concern is in this parasha. So therefore we should realize that the word Tameh and the word Tahor don't have any relevance to the sense of unclean or impure the way that people typically think of it. Um, and so, or contaminated or whatever. So even if we use that term figuratively, literally it's definitely not true. Now, <clears throat> so we see that the woman who gives birth, birth itself creates Tum'ah. And that's very odd because you would think that birth of all things is, is such a, a special and happy time. Why should such a thing produce Tum'ah? It should be the opposite. A person who is uh, giving birth, it's a miracle of life, should be a celebration, should bring them closer to God, should not be something that creates a barrier between them and God. So why does it create Tum'ah? It seems to fly, go exactly against everything that we think of when we think of Tum'ah. Because when we think of Tum'ah, we think of the ultimate Tum'ah, which is usually the Tum'ah of death. Tumatmet. Um, this is the opposite. This tumah that comes out of, of life, of birth. What is the concept here? I think that the real issue, the real idea of tumah that we have to understand is that what tumah and tarah are identifying is that we as human beings are complicated 
complicated beings. We are not simple. An animal, in a way, has it easier than we do. That doesn't mean that an animal has it better than we do, but an animal has it easier than we do. Because an animal can follow instinct and always be right. Nobody's going to say, oh, that cow is a bad cow, or the dog is a bad dog, or anything like that. Well, they might say that they don't like a dog because a dog bothers them, but insofar as it's a dog, meaning if it just lived in the wild as a dog, it would just be a dog. There's no moral judgment of a dog. It doesn't make moral decisions, or it doesn't have ethical dilemmas, the dog. It just follows its instinct. It, it lives the way it's programmed to live. And so, therefore, an animal in a certain way is not superior to a human being, but has a simpler existence than a human being because we have conflict and we have problems and we have instincts that direct us in one way and our mind tells us, no, that's not the way, we have to go another way. These conflicts and these issues uh, make our lives much more complicated. For an animal, it simply follows the instinctual uh, impulse and follow, you know, whether fight or flight or pursuit of something that it wants or whatever it is that instinct dictates, it follows. So in that way, it's simpler. We can't always tell. Is the feeling that I have that this is the right thing coming from my instinct, that I want to do it? Or is this feeling that I have that this is the right thing coming from that I actually thought about it? Am I biased or am I being honest? These are questions that are high-level questions for a human being to answer. They're not the kind of questions that a non-human would ever consider. So Tumah Vitara, applying to a human being really essentially, means that a, a person's physical nature, body, is sometimes an impediment or an obstruction to their service of God, and sometimes could be an instrument of their service of God. And being aware of that is winning half the battle, you know, because if a person recognizes that, you know, I'm, I'm a complicated creature, and I have to exist as a physical being in the world, but I have to also realize that as a physical being, um, sometimes that sets up limitations on my ability to relate to God. And I have to be honest with myself. There's a halakha that many people don't realize, and I don't want you to take this halakha too, uh, too literally, because then we're going to see uh, we're gonna see the synagogue empty. But if you look at what the halakha, the Rambam actually codifies this halakha in the Mishneh Torah. In his book of laws, he codifies it. A person who comes, and it's, it's written in the Talmud, but... We don't really apply it today. Nobody practices this today. But the Rambam says, a person who comes in from a trip, okay, he was on a, on, a, on a journey, and he comes in, should not pray for three days. Why? Because he's not going to have kavanah. Now, why don't we practice this halakha today? Because we say that even on an ordinary day, when a person is not traveling, they don't have kavanah. So who is fooling them? You're fooling yourself. Who are you trying to fool to say that now you have kavanah? Oh, I came from a trip. I can't have kavanah. How can you expect me to have kavanah? You don't have kavanah on a regular day either. So you can't pretend to that. But the, uh, the concept is very significant. In other words, the concept is don't cheapen the experience of tefillah by assuming that you can have proper kavanah when you really cannot. Okay recognize and have the humility to acknowledge that at certain times of life you're not in the state of mind where you can approach Hashem wholeheartedly and, be, and, and you have to be authentic in your service of God and not try to pretend. And that's why the Allah says that a person who comes in from a journey has a few days off of tefillah. I'm not saying we should recommend that today because nowadays even our ordinary tefillot are not so great. But a person who thinks that they're able to pray and that could have meaning or overestimates their ability is making an error. And I think this is really where Judaism and where the Torah uh, is 
ahead of, in many ways, other religions. Because there are other religions that make a claim that a human being could be more than a human being. That really you could be an angel, you could be celibate, you could not have a family, you could live a life that's purely a spiritual life with no physicality at all, and be able to have a fulfilling life and a spiritual life. And you know what? Since some, you know, since most people can't really do that, so uh, we, can, we we make a concession and we let them we let them uh, indulge in the physical existence. But they should realize it's what we call an alachab b'diavad. It's not the ideal. It would be better if they could be like a malach, like an angel, a perfect spiritual being. The Torah is very realistic. The Torah doesn't claim that. See, other religions claim that the ideal priest is a, is, a, uh, is a person who has no physical involvement at all. And maybe they look at Moshe Rabbeinu. Moshe Rabbeinu, separated from his wife, separated from eating and drinking for 40 days and 40 nights, really was almost like a malach, basically. It was like an angel. But he was unique. In other words, from the very fact that Miriam and Aaron saw a problem in what Moshe was doing by separating from his wife. Um, shows you that that wasn't considered normal. They didn't think that was normal. They said he's being abnormal, he's being strange. Why is he separating from his wife? And only because Hashem said it was necessary in that case for Moshe Rabbeinu did they accept it. But in theory, it would be, it, it's not considered normal, meaning in general for, an, for anyone else besides Moshe Rabbeinu, meaning like anybody else besides Moshe Rabbeinu, it's not considered normal to not live a physical life. A physical life is, is uh, a part of who we are as human beings. We're not malachim, we're not angels. So we embrace the physical life. We embrace the idea of having family and having children and so on. But we also recognize that in that moment of the trauma to the body of, uh, of birth is not a time that a person is really in the mental state where she's going to be able to go to the Bet HaMikdash. And recognizing that the physical, our bodies are wonderful and birth is a miracle. And, and any of you, all of you who uh, have children, you know that you know, there's no greater miracle that we see with our own eyes than the birth of a child. It's incredible. And I mean, even the lead up to it, the, the time of pregnancy and seeing the child develop and, and eventually be born, it's really something uh, that is, uh, seems like a... Uh, as close to the supernatural as we get. It's something really, really amazing and incredible. But, uh, but still, even so, so, you know, we celebrate that and we love that, but we also recognize at that time, if you think back and any of you have had kids, you know, even for the, even for the father, uh, the time right after the birth of a child, you're kind of in a different mental state. You're not, uh, your, your mind is not where, uh, where it normally is. You're preoccupied with, with other things physicality uh, takes center stage. Taking care of a newborn baby is a very physical thing that needs to be done. It takes away your sleep time. It takes away your eating time. It's very, uh, it makes your, uh, your schedule totally uh, off kilter. So we know that it really affects, and of course it affects most of all the woman who gave birth, that her body is like, you know, goes through an experience, which we don't want to call it a traumatic experience because it's natural, but it's, a, it's, a, it's definitely a transformative experience and a, a, an experience that requires recovery afterwards. And so the Torah recognizing that as beautiful as, uh, as birth is and as amazing it is, as it is and as it's a mitzvah to have children, Still, it creates tum'ah. Why? Because it's an encounter with the physicality that we are. It's an encounter with the, our, our humanity, our mortality, our 
our bodily nature. And you see that right in the middle of this, where it has nothing to do with purity and impurity, it says, On the eighth day, this, the, the foreskin of the baby should be circumcised. What's the relevance of that to Tum'ah? On the surface, nothing at all. The rabbis in Masachet Shabbat discuss halachic implications of this pasuk here. But the simple meaning, I think, of it, uh, not just halachic implications, not just why it's here to teach you certain halachot that could be derived from it, but there's some basic interpretation, which is that the physicality of a person can be consecrated to God. And the Brit Milah represents the idea that the bodily nature can be harnessed and consecrated to God. And the Brit Milah is the curbing of appetite or the sanctifying of the physical for the sake of the spiritual, for the sake of service of Hashem. And that's why, uh, seemingly, that's why, at least according to one of the, uh, there, there are different interpretations in the commentaries why the tum'ah for a boy is shorter than the tum'ah for a girl, but everybody seems to think that it revolves around the fact that there's a brit milah for a boy. That's what the Midrash says, that the tum'ah is cut short so that the, so that the woman would not be tume'ah, she would not be in a state of ritual impurity on the day of the brit milah. So, um, so really it should be a 14-day impurity for both the uh, boy and girl being born, but the brit milah interrupts. Now, why does it interrupt? So it could be because there's two ways that the body can serve the soul, can be an instrument and a partner to the soul. One is where we let the bodily energy, we let the body recover, like the person who comes back from the trip and he needs his body to recover so that he can have the presence of mind to be able to learn or, the, or be able to pray. The person who goes through a physically intense experience needs to be able to recover from that and a woman needs to be able to recover from that. And in a way that's passive, that's a waiting game, it's a matter of time. But you can also sometimes take action to refocus and to recalibrate your sense of how your body is a vehicle of service of God. And the Brit Milah does that. The Brit Milah, by consecrating the body to the service of God, and specifically the Torah chose, Hashem chose uh, the reproductive organ of the man to make that point, because the idea is that the animal, our animal nature that reproduces, it's just like an animal in that sense, that we reproduce and we engage in activity of uh, mating, just like other creatures, that very thing is consecrated to God because we, we engage in the physical for the sake of serving God and we also reproduce for the sake of passing knowledge of God onto the next generation. That's the goal of it. So we take in, because there's a positive action that's done on the eighth day of doing circumcision, so that cuts the tum'ah short. So instead of there having to be a recovery period of waiting passively, there can be an action that's done that can recalibrate the focus Actively, And that's the difference between the two. But basically, I think they both are focused on the same idea of the balance between the physical and the spiritual. Sometimes the physical gets overwhelming. Definitely birth is an example where the body is, is over, the, the focus on the body is overwhelming. Naturally so. The Torah doesn't say that that's bad. It just says that during that time, the woman shouldn't go into the Beit HaMikdash. She shouldn't be involved in holy things. Not because there's anything wrong with her. On the contrary, it's the opposite, actually. It's because we're giving her the opportunity to recover and she shouldn't be involved in the holy things because she's not yet ready for the holy things because her mind is on other things. So she's being given, granted a period of time to recover 
and shouldn't be expected to go to the Beit HaMikdash and shouldn't be expected to be involved in, in sacred things. And in fact, if she does, it's almost, a, it's almost a lowering of those things because it suggests that even in a state where we are not with our full faculties, we should be going to the Beit HaMikdash. And that's not true. A person shouldn't be doing that. A person should take a break when they need to take a break. So when they engage, they engage fully. And they're able to. It's a, there's also a, a, a halacha, another halacha that we don't follow today. Practically, we don't follow it today. But there is a halacha that says that a chatan, uh, this is in Masechet Bachot, it's in the Mishnah. Masechet Bachot says that a chatan on the night of his wedding does not say Kriyat Shema. And in fact, the rabbi said, not only, there, there's an argument among the rabbis, what if the chatan wants to say the Kriyat Shema? What happens then? The rabbi said, no, not everybody, not everybody who wants to claim that they're on the level to be able to read the Kriyat Shema should take that, that honor for himself. In other words, a really honest person on the night of his wedding, a newlywed, knows his kavanah during the prayer. We always have a minyan, let's say, in the room, the chup, in the room of the ketubah before the wedding. Everyone's kavanah could be okay, but the chatan who's thinking about is about to get married. His mind is not fully in that tefillah. We know that his mind is not fully in that tefillah. He's about to do a major undertaking, and so uh, to, you know, to uh, his life is about to be changed, and so. Uh, uh, so we know that his kafanah is going to be limited. So realistically, could we say that that chatan is saying the Kriyat Shema with a uh, complete focus? No. Um, but nowadays we say that, well, since even on a regular evening or even on a regular morning, most people are not so focused on the Kriyat Shema, so we don't have to be so puritanical about it, what our expectations are for Kriyat Shema. But where the standards were high, you see, that the standards in the times of the Mishnah, so we're going back about 1,800 years plus. So we're going back to that period of time, um, 1,800, 2,000 years ago. At that time, the standard for kavanah, for concentration and reading the Shema was very high. And a person who was not able to reach that level of concentration was not only not, did not, not only didn't have to, but wasn't supposed to engage in the Kriyat Shema because he should realize, number one, he should realize his own limitations and in realizing his own limitations and accepting them, he's also honoring, he's honoring the, uh, uh, you know, the sanctity of the Kriyat Shema because he doesn't want to say it when it's not going to be with the full Kavanah because if he says it when it's not with the full Kavanah, then it's showing, it's, it's a disrespect. It's like a person who goes and decides that they want to read the Torah when they're not prepared, okay? Uh, it, it, a person should, who is it, a person who respects the Torah is going to prepare because they want to honor the Torah. They don't want their reading to be dishonorable. Um, a person who goes and reads it without any preparation, it's not just that they don't realize that they're not prepared. Maybe they overestimate their level of preparation, but they're also um, taking away from the sanctity of the Torah. Or, or if you think about wearing tefillin, a person wears tefillin, he's not supposed to Think about other things when he's wearing the tefillin. Think about inappropriate things when he's wearing the tefillin. That's why there are some people who take off the tefillin as soon as possible after the prayer because they know that they can't keep their concentration after the prayer, prayer is over. That, but what, what's the reason? It's because knowing that you have to take the tefillin off if you're having thoughts that are inappropriate reinforces the sanctity of the tefillin. It reinforces the sanctity and the significance of that action that you're only going to do it when you're fully capable of doing it reinforces how significant it is. So the Beit HaMikdash, by saying 
only when you're fully in it, only when you really can give it your undivided attention should you do it. That takes the pressure off of you. You don't have to be a malach. You don't have to pretend to be an angel. You can say, I'm not up to it. I'm not ready. I'm not able. And it also it preserves the sanctity, the holiness of the Beit HaMikdash or of the Avodah, of the service of God. And I think this is, the, this is what Tum'ah, as messy as it is, meaning it's very physical and it's very detailed, but what it's doing is it's acknowledging that we're physical beings beings and it's acknowledging how complicated that is but it's not acknowledging it and criticizing us it's not condemning us the fact that we are to today doesn't make us any less good than before it's just saying acknowledging accepting the reality of what it means that we're physical and that we go through certain periods of life where we're not up to full uh, focus on serving Hashem so this is the first type of Tum'ah interestingly the Tum'ah from the very beginning of um, of uh, birth very, very beginning of life comes with tum'ah because it is a physical process. It's the ultimate physical process. And the woman at the end of, the pro, uh, at the end of her waiting period has to bring korbanot. She brings an olah, a burnt offering, and she brings a chatat, a sin offering. And I wanted to just comment on this for one second because everybody asks, why does she bring a, uh, why does she bring a, uh, a, a sin offering? What sin did she do? It says chatat. So first of all, the Ola offering that she brings, you see that pretty much anybody in the Torah who's banned, so to speak, or not allowed for a protracted period of time to come to the Beit HaMikdash has to bring some kind of a korban when they resume, uh, when they resume entry to the Beit HaMikdash. And the woman is not allowed to come to the Beit HaMikdash for 40 days after having a boy and for 80 days after having a girl. So it's quite a long time. So when she's allowed to come back, she brings a korban olah. Korban olah is a burnt offering, which means acknowledgement of God, of the transcendence of God. It's completely given to God. So it's an acknowledgement of God. It can also be construed in the case of a woman who's given birth as a thanks to God for the child or for the surviving birth. Um, So there's an acknowledgement of God. That acknowledgement is a general acknowledgement that she hasn't been able to come to the Beit HaMikdash for a while to express her acknowledgement of God in general. But specifically, an acknowledgement meaning a thank you to God for her life and for the life of her child. And you know that acknowledgement is wrapped up with the acknowledgement of God in general. That's the Koban Olah. But why a Chatat? Why a sin offering? Now the rabbis have a Midrash on this and I believe that Rashi... Um, Rashi brings, let's see, uh, where is the Rashi that he says? Uh, he brings a, uh, the English Rashi is a little weird. Let's see, wh- let's see where he says the, um, where he says the famous Midrash of why there is a Chatat. Let's see, is it here? No, is it here? I thought that he wrote it here, but uh, it must be elsewhere that he mentions it. But either way, there's a Midrash that says why she brings a Chatat. And it says that the reason is because when she was, uh, when she was giving birth, the woman probably swore up and down, I'm never going to touch my husband again. I'm never going to have a child again. I'm never going to go through this again. I don't want anything to do with this again. And because of all those curses and promises that she made when she was, uh, when she was giving birth, that now obviously she didn't really mean. So uh, the chatat comes to 
cover for those oaths and promises and claims that she made when she was in the tra- experiencing the travails of birth. That's one interpretation of the chatat of the um, of the uh, uh, of the woman who gave birth. But um, and and that would mean that there is in a way, and you see then that there is in a way a kind of a sin involved in it. But the sin is not the giving birth. We don't believe that giving birth is a sin. Obviously, the opposite. But um, the idea is that 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 a woman under duress in that situation who's experiencing uh, the pain of birth would express certain feelings or thoughts that are considered inappropriate. Um, and even though they're, they aren't appropriate, it's built into the process of purification that uh, she brings a chatat. In other words, what that means is that I think there's something very deep there. In other words, according to that midrash that we expect the woman to say or express certain sentiments that are inappropriate at the time of birth, and then she has to bring a chatat. Look at how beautiful the way the Torah is addressing that, because it's not saying like we're, you know, it's it's saying it's natural to do that. It's saying it's it's expected that the woman is going to do that. It's normal that she's going to do that, and uh, it's not something exceptional. And if you were in a situation where it you know it was once in a while, or certain people behaved that way and other people did not, so then you could say that. Uh, that it was, you know, it wouldn't be incorporated into the formal process of the purification after birth because it would be only for women who, who said or expressed those kinds of inappropriate sentiments. But uh, the fact that the Torah is incorporating it into the normal purification process of the woman suggests that, yes, it's something that she has to bring a chatat, she has to bring a sin offering, it's something that's considered... That, you know, that she shouldn't have done, she shouldn't have said those things or uh, expressed those sentiments, and yet it's built into the process because it's natural for her to do it. It's normal and natural for her to, uh, to feel that way at the time of birth. So I think it's amazing that the Torah is saying uh, that we accept and acknowledge human nature and human emotion and how the person's going to feel when they're under duress and how the person's going to feel when they're experiencing pain and yet we still say that afterwards they should reflect upon that and they should acknowledge um, the excesses that they engaged in when they were under duress. They should still acknowledge it. They should still uh, reflect uh, upon that even though the, um, even though the, uh, you know, it, we, we expect it almost of her. So much so does the Torah expect it. The Torah expects it so much that it actually incorporates it into the offering of the woman who gave birth. For all women who gave birth, it's incorporated into the process. So this is something really incredible that you can have something which is considered in a way not appropriate, in a way... Uh, you know, something that needs to be atoned for, and yet it's something that we expect as a natural course of things, such that it's actually incorporated into the, the normal process of, uh, of kapara. It's not some, it's like Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur, we don't say, well, that's presupposing that we're going to sin. How could you have a Yom Kippur? Maybe people won't sin, they have free choice. No, it's natural that a person is going to fall off of the path over the course of a year. It's natural that that's going to happen. It's not good. It's not ideal. We would love for everyone to be perfect all the time, but we know that that's not going to happen, so therefore the Torah instituted Yom Kippur. The same thing here. I think it's very deep, and it's a way, it means you have to accept yourself and forgive yourself for being a human being. 
See, and this is the, um, I see here the Ramban brings it. I know it's in Rashi, but the Rashi is not jumping out of my eyes for some reason. But I see it in the Ramban here. It says, the rabbi said, and this is from the, the Talmud, it's from uh, Masachet Nida, that that a woman uh, at the time of, uh, uh, of giving birth is going to make an oath that she's not going to have anything to do with her husband anymore. And, the Ramban, and, and, therefore, and therefore she has to bring an atonement for it. The Ramban's language is very interesting. Um, that the thoughts of Hashem are deep and His mercy is great. He wants to justify his creations, meaning he wants to he wants to make it right. He wants to give the uh, the woman the opportunity uh, to to correct what was what was done wrong, to uh, uh, to atone for what happened. And I think that's in a way what I what, what I'm suggesting as well. I didn't I wasn't thinking and I wasn't expressing it exactly the way the Ramban is expressing it. But I think that what the Ramban is saying is similar to what I'm saying, that you see that the Torah acknowledges and accepts that that's natural, that a woman is going to do that, and yet at the same time uh, it says that she should recognize where she went overboard and correct it. And, um, and another, but I, I wanted to just mention that the word chatat does not always mean a sin offering, and I think this is one of the, uh, one of the important points to be uh, emphasized. Lechate in Hebrew, has two meanings. Chatat can mean a sin, but lechate is also to purify or to cleanse. Um, we always say uh, we say um, uh, that uh, that lechateh uh, that we cleanse the altar of the Beit Hamikdash. Lechate can mean um, cleaning, and so chatat here might not mean in the sense of a sin, that she did a sin. That's what the Midrash, the Midrash is reading into the word chatat, that she did a sin and therefore has to correct it, even though the sin was under duress. Um, but lechatat can also mean for cleansing, that because she has returned uh, from a period of, quote-unquote, impurity, and she's now starting over, she's re- resuming a relationship with God, so that cleansing is effectuated by this korban. And if you look, you'll see that every case where a person has a protracted period of tum'ah, also the zav, zava, they bring a chatat. That doesn't mean because they did a sin. It means because it, the, the purification that they are, uh, uh, that the process of purification involves these sacrifices. So the chatat is a cleansing. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean a sin offering per se. And if you read it that way, chatat not meaning sin offering, but meaning cleansing offering, so then you don't have to come on to the whole question of whether she actually did something wrong or not. It's just part of the purification. And if you look, every case where you have a chatat um, and, and the rabbis wonder what sin did the person do that they have to bring a chatat, in, all, in every case, if you interpret it rather than being a sin offering as being a purification offering, it fits much better. Um, now, obviously, a chatat, meaning a sin offering, and a chatat, meaning a purification offering, could have an overlap. Because if a person sinned and they did teshuvah and they bring a chatat, uh, they're also cleansing themselves of their sin. But what I'm saying is that it doesn't necessarily presuppose an action that the person did that was a sin. It could just mean purification in the sense of ritual purification, that they are uh, completing the... Uh, the uh, cleansing process uh, from the Tum'ah that was holding them back from coming into the Beit HaMikdash. And the Chatat is actually always brought first, even though it's written second here. So the Chatat would be brought first, meaning the cleansing process is completed, and then the Ola, which acknowledges God, is done. Um, I think that the 
But the main theme that I wanted everyone to reflect upon, and I think it's so important, is this theme that because we are physical, because we are human, we have a lot of flaws and we have a lot of uh, limitations. And on one hand, we have to try to strive to overcome the limitations, but we accept those limitations that they're there. We acknowledge them, we accept them, we work within them. And, we, and that's how we're able to improve ourselves, because we acknowledge them. If we deny them and pretend that we can be perfect angels, on the contrary, really our inner demons will get the best of us because we'll be fooling ourselves into thinking that we're more that we, than we are or that we're closer to God than we really are. Just like we could fool ourselves into thinking we're really praying when it's a mindless uh, mechanical action or that we're really saying the Shema when it's a mindless mechanical action or whatever that may be. So this, this is one of the themes. And a similar, we, we find in the, similarly in the, in the case of the, uh, of the Mitzorah. The Mitzorah, there's a lot of detail about the Tzorah the, the affliction of the skin that the Mitzvah has. And um, even though the order that it's written in, in the Torah is first the bodily Torah and then the clothing and then the house, the rabbis say that actually the clothing, and that what happens is that first the house gets Torah and then the clothing and then the person. There's a gradual process of the Torah infiltrating the person's life. And the reason there is, again, it's a bodily affliction. So it has to do with our bodily nature. Just like all of the tumults pretty much I have to do with the body. Um, various emissions from the body of different fluids. Uh, death, obviously, is a dead body or even the dead body of an animal um, it can be a source of tum'ah because death is something that we, you know, reminds us of our mortality. Uh, even an animal's death, we can, uh, uh, you know, we, we uh, you know, can, is the same type of death that we have. It's the death of the body. In, ter- in terms of the body, it's the same. So the, uh, so the idea of the, our physical nature is represented in the tum'ah. Um, in the case of tzara'at, it's a little bit different because it's not a natural process like an illness or a emission of fluid or a giving of birth or death, but it is a supernatural intervention of a skin discoloration that occurs to the person. And of course, the rabbis have a tradition and there's a lot of sources to, to back it up, especially the story of Miriam, that tzara'at would come when a person was uh, saying Lashon Ara. If you look in the Tanakh, you'll see that Tzarat also typically it, it was, it would afflict an arrogant person, a person who had a big ego. But I think those two things are connected because Lashon speaking badly about people, is to prop yourself up. It's to make yourself feel like you have more substance than you do because you trash the other person and it makes, yourself, it makes you feel better about yourself. It makes you feel superior to them. And so there's an ego element, or it's really insecurity, but... It's uh, a person who cannot build themselves up. We'll talk about other people and trash them in order to uh, give themselves the illusion of being superior. And so what the tzara'at does is the tzara'at forces the person or tries to educate the person towards um, uh, you know, getting away from focusing on others and instead focusing on the self. And you see that it begins with the things that are the outward expression of the person, the house of the person, the clothing of the person. These all have to do with the image of the person. And obviously the body of the person is the ultimate example of their, outer, uh, of their image to the world. It's the way that their body looks and how they appear. And the fact that the, that the person who has tarat on their body, they have to isolate, they have to go in, you know, outside of the inhabited area and tell everyone to stay away from them. This is a, uh, the ultimate uh, sense of self-reflection um, and separation from others. But the process is gradual. First the house, then the clothing, then the body, because the person is supposed to be receding from a focus on trying to prop him or herself up at the expense of others 
And uh, eventually, if it doesn't work, if losing the house doesn't uh, humble the person, if having the clothing destroyed doesn't humble the person, then the body itself is afflicted. But the idea is to humble the person that, and to remind them that they have to build themselves up on their own strengths. I've often mentioned that Sarat actually is compared to death. Uh, in, if you look at what, um, what Aaron says to Moshe, when Miriam has Sarat, he says, don't let her be like a dead person, that flesh is being consumed. And, uh, and that's what, it, really the flesh of Tzarat is like dead flesh. If you look in the Torah portion of, of last week, it calls the flesh that is not Tzarat, Basar Chai. Basar Chai, right here in the, uh, on verse 10, you can see on the screen share, Umechiat Basar Chai Basit. Basar Chai is the non, the living flesh is the non Tzarat. Tzarat is dead flesh. So what it's really saying is that it's almost as if a part of the person is dying. And wh- why would that happen? Things are decaying and dying when things are uh, lack substance. Things are falling apart, and so for and and the and what Hashem is trying to teach the person is that they have an illusion of of substance. They have an illusion of feeling that they're very significant, but it's beginning to crumble around them. It first crumbles in the form of their house, then their clothing, and then their body is almost die. They're living. They're living dead. In other words, they are. They are. Uh, their body is falling apart even as they speak because they're meaning to focus on the fact that they themselves are missing real life. And that's why they have to speak about others and occupy themselves talking about others to give themselves an illusion of being people of substance. And by isolating the person and forcing him to really engage in some reflection, uh, hopefully he does teshuvah, he repents and he corrects the error of his ways and he's able to refocus his speech and his attention on the things that really count. But it's, um, it, I, I like to use the example, we say get a life to somebody. If you say get a life, it doesn't mean that you think that they're actually dead. It means that you think that there's no substance to their life. And really what the, that's what Tzorat is. The person, what the Torah is saying is get a life. You're, you're starting to die while you're still alive because instead of having substance to fill the vacuum of your soul, you're trying to fill it with other people uh, you know, with talking about other people, gossiping about other people, putting other people down, whatever it is that uh, gives you that um, illusion that you are superior. And so um, this is, again, speaking to a flaw uh, within us that prevents us ultimately from relating properly to one another and properly to Hashem. Just like the idea that we are not physical beings, we're angelic beings, we are, you know, we, we, is a distortion. So too, the idea that in a social framework, we're all going to exist in a kind of a I, idyllic uh, utopia where everybody is perfect also is a, an illusion. And so the Torah acknowledges that these failings are natural. These, that the idea that there's going to be tzarat is something which is a natural. Um, I mean, it's obviously a divine intervention, the idea of tzarat, but the concept that, that there will be tzarat is uh, an acknowledgement that human beings will naturally stray into social cattiness and talking about each other and gossiping and cliques and all of that. And the purpose of the Torah is to recognize and try to correct for that. So that people, when, because when people focus on the ideas and the values that are really important, they cease to be interested in the details of one another's lives and in getting involved in other, one another's business because they have too many important things to think about and to do without that. Um, it's the people who are empty of any substance that seek uh, entertainment and gossip and, and other kinds of uh, frivolous activities and uh, discussions. 
And that's the, uh, the Rambam. There's a beautiful Rambam uh, in the end of Hilchot Sarat who really articulates this. And basically what he says, it's a long Rambam, but he says that the person who isn't, that really a foolish person is involved in talking about the details of other people's lives and ultimately it leads them to deny God, meaning they get so involved in this world of what this person's doing, what that person's doing, um, and it, it's become such a source of focus that they, uh, they lose their sense of any greater reality. He said, but a real wise person, their discussion is Torah v'chuchma. It's Torah and wisdom and mitzvot. There's so much good to focus on, to speak about, and to use our power of speech to accomplish that we, uh, you know, that it, it will suffer if we allow our power of speech and our attention to be devoted to lesser things. So the, it's natural to do it. It's our human nature that we're going to gravitate towards that. But the Torah is correcting that by giving us this idea of tzara'at that pushes back against the idea of making the social reality the only reality and reminds us that ultimately Hashem's plan is the reality and, uh, and our job is not to make other people the focus of our attention, but it's to make Hashem the focus and to partner with other people in uh, building a society that is serving Hashem. And so, uh, again, that doesn't deny the existence of other people or society. It doesn't say that we should live as hermits and be isolated from one another. But it says that sometimes the very fact that we do that is going to lead to certain excesses that need to be, cre- that need to be corrected by Tzarat so we're able to regain that sense of balance and a proper perspective and, uh, and pursue what is really good together. So I think that overall, what is the theme of Tumah V'tarah? Take, you know, sort of in the, in the broad sense, it's to recognize the reality of the condition in which we live physically, as physical beings, as mortals, um, as human beings, and as social beings, to recognize all of those realities, how powerful those realities can be as instruments to serving God. The physical is an instrument to serving God. It's represented in Brit Milah. The person's energies, bodily energy, can be devoted to serving God, that's for sure, but it can also be sometimes a distraction and, a, uh, and pull us away from serving God. And that's our nature. And the same with the social reality. The social reality is something that we can't deny. We're not going to go live in caves. We're not going to isolate ourselves. But it is a double-edged sword. It can be something which is a, um, which is a, uh, a, a source of distraction and holds us back and pushes us in the wrong direction. It can also be an opportunity. The social, uh, uh, our social lives are a framework in which we create minyanim, we create shiurim, we do things as a collective for the service of Hashem. And so that's really, to me, what Tumah V'tarah is about, striking that balance so that we don't go in either extreme and we're able to integrate our physical lives, our social lives, and our religious lives all together. So Bezrat Hashem, next week we will finally be able to meet in person uh, have this your resume in person. We're going to, of course, continue to broadcast on Zoom for those who would like to uh, access on Zoom. But we're going to continue next week, Bezrat Hashem, uh, having a live shiur, inviting everybody back to be together with us at Or Esther like we had before, um, with the option of Zoom for those who feel more comfortable uh, watching from home. So I hope everyone will join us next week, same time, but different location will be Bezrat Hashem in the uh, in in one thirty.